0: time before his word, before the Bible. We uh, understand from God, from the scriptures themselves, the ultimate uh, authority and first source of knowledge that uh, this is the word of God. And so we dig into it and live in it. And so we as a church spend time going through books of the Bible and we are in the letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, So you can turn there. We're in chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. This is a letter written to a uh, relatively young congregation. They've recently come to understand Jesus as Savior and Lord. Uh, there would have been a mix of Jewish and uh, non-Jewish people. So the Jewish people would have had a background of expecting God to send the Messiah. And so they'd come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, God in the flesh, ca- coming to rescue us from uh, sin and death, to live in the Lord. And, and similarly, the Gentiles, most of them would have had background background in Jewish teaching, because they would have been God-fearing uh, Gentiles. And so it's a relatively young congregation, and Paul's been apart from them, and he's concerned for them. And so he when he finds out that they're doing well, he writes this letter. And this letter is just full of encouragement and instruction as well. It's really, I think we could title this series in First Thessalonians, Encouragement uh, for Christians in a discouraging world. Uh, so we're in chapter two, verses nine through twelve. And let me pray, and I'm just going to jump in and read that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us this word here uh, that is living and active, that it's for us, Lord, today, uh, that in your sovereignty, not only was it meant to minister to the Thessalonians when they first received it, but your church through the ages and until you return, Lord Jesus. And so thank you that this morning here at King Grace Church, uh, it's your plan that we would be in this paragraph, and be encouraged by you and instructed. So we ask you to help us hear from you. Help me to teach and proclaim your word so that at the end of our time, we will say that, that God in his grace and goodness has spoken to us. We want to hear and believe and receive your word and obey. So help us, O oh Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 9 and following chapter 2, it says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God's word from First Thessalonians 2, 9 to 12. For uh, many years, Monterey, California was a pelican's paradise. And as the fishermen cleaned their fish, uh, they would Uh, fling the leftovers to the pelicans, and the birds grew fat and lazy and contented. Eventually, uh, the fishing industry there decided actually to use the leftovers for other things, like bait and so forth, and there were no longer snacks for the pelicans. And when that change came, the pelicans made no effort to return to fishing for themselves. They waited around and they grew thin and gaunt, and some of them actually starved to death. They had forgotten how to fish for themselves. And the way the problem was solved is they imported new pelicans from the south who knew how to fish. They brought them, and and these these pelicans were placed among the starving pelicans, and they started foraging for themselves, these these new pelicans. They had an influence immediately, and soon the other other pelicans caught on and started catching fish. And before long... um, They all were eating, fishing again, and the famine was ended. Well, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul and his team are the imported pelicans. And they have been imported to Thessalonica to teach the gospel and to model for the people there how to live a gospel-driven life. And so this paragraph is really a picture of Paul and his team and how they lived. And Paul is exhorting them and encouraging them to follow their gospel-driven example. So that's what this paragraph is about. It's about following a gospel-driven life. And so we're going to dig into it. We're going to learn about what a gospel-driven life is. That's where we'll start. And then we're going to lo- learn about the particulars, the particular ways that, that a gospel-driven life produces uh, behaviors and, and attitudes. So we'll, we'll work through those and just work through the passage. So I have four points. I think you have notes to follow along in. And we're just going to dig in. The beginning of verse 9, Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. Uh, And then he says in verse 10, You are witnesses, and God also. Actually, in this letter, Paul uses remember and know in the same way you know, brothers, 15 times. 15 times in this short letter, he's saying, You remember, or You know. And he's doing this to remind them. He's reminding them of their time together, he's reminding them of what they were taught. He's reminding of the, them of the examples they saw in Paul and the team. And that's what he does through this. And I think there are two reasons that he does this. Two reasons why he keeps on pointing to what they were taught, what they saw in the life of Paul and his team. One is that it's through these examples that, that they learn how to live the Christian life. It's, it's through these examples that they're encouraged and, and reminded and directed about a gospel-driven life. A second point uh, I think is valid as well is that they they were living in Thessalonica amidst persecution. And if you remember, Paul was driven out of Thessalonica and Paul's reputation was damaged and there was just the reality of of how the enemy worked really uh, was to work in the churches to slander Paul and thus slander what they were taught, slander the gospel. And so Paul is wanting to remind them about how they lived so that they would hold on to the message that was preached and would not be persuaded by their persecutors, and that's just a reality uh, throughout Paul's ministry, and it's a reality throughout the church, actually. One of the strategies of the enemy is to get us to, to believe the slander about, about those who represent the gospel, and, there, and to be poisoned by that and driven away from our church or, or Christianity or whatever it might be. So Paul is putting forward his example and the team's example to both remind them and teach them about living the Christian life and to protect them from the danger of the poison of slander. Paul and his team loved these guys, and we see it throughout this letter. They loved these people in Thessalonica. They had not only gone there to share the good news, they didn't just go there to proclaim truth, but they invested their very lives in the people. We don't know how long they were there. It was as short as two weeks, so I think that's unlikely, and probably as long as three months that they were there. And in that short amount of time, they poured their lives into the people there. So th- that when they, Paul writes this letter, you can see the affection. And you heard last week about how they they cared for them as as a mother for an infant. That was the sort of relationship that they had. There was this care, there was this love, there was this connection. And it's interesting to think about this. I know Jeff talked about it a little bit last week. They did this in the context of great persecution. They did this in the context of being driven from previous places and then being driven out of Thessalonica and then kept on doing that, going from city to city, village to village, proclaiming the gospel and loving people with all their hearts. Is that not amazing? Just stop and think about it. If you were driven by persecution out of places and your life was threatened or even taken, it looks like Paul may have gone to heaven and then God revived him as he tells about his own story in 2 Corinthians. And yet to get up and to go to the next village and to share the gospel again and to love people without reserve. It's amazing just to step back a little bit. Uh, to not kind of move through this ladder and not catch this. And so Paul's example and the team's example is extraordinary. And and the Thessalonians, as they heard this, they would have remembered all this. They would have been reading this and thinking, yes, you came to us and you loved us and you shared the gospel and you poured out your lives and you were under threat. And so this is a compelling example. And, And we have to ask, why? I mean, how? Why? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer in this paragraph. And really all the instructions that he's giving in reminding them of their own lives and and setting forth their example is driven by what we see in verse 12. And so before I get into the particulars, uh, I want to cover what the Thessalonians, I think, would have taken for granted, would have understood in the context, what we see in verse 12. So in starting, I want to kind of start at the back First, because that's the source for everything else. And there's that statement in verse 12. We exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, charged you, to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And so all this behavior, all this example setting, all this encouragement and and exhortation and charging is so that they would... Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So a gospel-driven life begins and ends with God. That's what this teaches us. The end point here is to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's the end point. Paul's efforts, the team's effort, the, the point of the gospel actually is to conform us to the image of Christ. It rescues us from our sin to God. There's an end point in salvation. It's to be joined with God in union and conformed to the image of Christ. That's, that's the goal here. That's, if you are a believer in Jesus, you've turned away from self-effort, you've turned away from sin to Jesus. That is what will be accomplished in your life. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. He has loved you so much to not only rescue you in hearing the gospel, but to complete the process and bring you to that place where you live a life in your character and conduct worthy of God, where you reflect the image of Christ individually and corporately. So that's the goal here. The the goal is to to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, when we see that, there's there's a couple mistakes we can make. Two mistakes, I think. First, some would do this. They would basically look at that, walk in a manner worthy of God, and, and think about what it means, who God is, and his perfect holiness, His perfect goodness, His perfect love, never failing to love others, never failing to love within the Trinity. There's, there's no shadow of, of darkness or sin in God at all. And to, So to look at this, walk in a manner worthy of God, just simply say, that's impossible. That's impossible. So don't even worry about it. Just live in your forgiveness. Just remember grace. You're forgiven. There would be those who would say that. And, and, and I would say that too remember your forgiveness, live in your forgiveness, but not just live in your forgiveness. So one mistake would be what it, just a trend out there in, in theology is just get used to your justification, just live in your grace, and just, you know, this is put here just to drive you back, to r- remind you that you need forgiveness. That's simply what it's about. It's just a reminder. You can't do it on your own, so don't even try anything. Just rest in what Christ has done. Now that's really true. We, we are, and the Word of God should make us Run back to the cross. Run back to Christ and trust in him alone. But, but that's not what's going on in this passage, is it? Paul's not saying, you know, our examples—that's you know, don't worry about it. Those are just there that, you know, you might be convicted that you fall short so you can re- realize how good it is to be forgiven. He doesn't say that. All that is part of it, yes, but, but he's actually seriously expecting them to follow the examples. So it's not hypothetical. Now the other mistake we can make is to say, okay, so if this is real, I should try. But every time I try, I fail, and I fall short. And I'm more aware of my failures than anything, and I feel really guilty, I feel really condemned, and I live continually in condemnation. That's the other mistake. So one mistake is is just to, you know, not worry about trying. The other mistake is to try and fail and live in condemnation. Those are the two mistakes you can make in reading this passage, but the latter part of the passage helps us understand, helps us understand what's going on here. God, not only are we to walk in a manner worthy of God, but this is the God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. So the action, the ability comes not from us, but it comes from God. He is the one who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. He is the one who is actively pursuing us calling us. It's not just a hypothetical call in this context. It means a, an effective call. In other words, he calls when, and it happens. We are drawn into his own kingdom and glory. We're drawn to, to belong to him, to be part of his kingdom and to his glory. His own glory is is actually Christ himself. And so this this could be understood as being called into the image of Christ. He is the one who does the calling, works in our lives, changes us, gives us new life. He is the one who's, who In his counsel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determined to save us, to rescue us from sin and draw us to himself. And so the Father in his great eternal love saw us and loved us with an eternal love before time began and said, I love this one and I want this one to be my own. And I want this one to be rescued from her sin or his sin, brought into my kingdom and made to be like Jesus. I want them to be part of the fellowship of the Trinity. I want them to live in this eternal love and join our goodness and glory, and and being conformed to Christ. The Father had that great love, and the Son said, Yes, Father, I'll go, and I'll become a man, and I'll live a righteous life. I'll, I'll become a human who will live a righteous life and fulfill our righteousness, and then I will go to the cross, and I will offer up that righteousness on the cross to pay for the sins of the one that you love, and really any and all who would trust in Him are included in that. I will pay for their sins uh, so that they can be forgiven and free and there'll be no more penalty, there'll be no more enmity, there'll be no more brokenness in relationship with you. There'll be complete reconciliation through that work of my death on the cross. So Christ went, died on the cross, accomplished that, shed his blood, gave up his life to pay for your sins and to offer God a righteous sacrifice in your place, his own life, acceptable to God. God considered it fully acceptable so raised him, from the dead on the third day victorious over sin and death. So so God the Father loved you, God the Son came to rescue you, and in time, as you heard this good news, at some point and maybe for some of you it's this day, even right now as you hear the good news, the spirit of God worked in you and created new life in the context of hearing the gospel and your eyes were opened and you realized, wow, this is for me. And I want this. I don't want the old ways anymore. I want this and you woke up. And you Saw the truth and you saw the goodness of God in the gospel and you, by faith, received it. And at that moment, you're connected through Christ with God and you are reconciled. It's an amazing truth. It's the greatest truth in all of history. It's the greatest truth we could ever hear. It's a truth we need to hear over and over again. And that's behind what it's saying when it says God called you into his own kingdom and glory. I love how 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts... What Christ did for us. And this is such an important verse to get. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I heard an illustration once, I saw an illustration once I thought would be helpful. Um, So picture the left hand being you, and the book, the Bible, just being the weight of your sin. You're burdened by sin. you, You bear your sin. You bear the consequences of your sin. And my right hand is Christ without any sin, but instead, just imagine the tissue being, tissue paper being the glory of Christ, his perfect righteousness, white, stain, uh, stainless, perfect, glorious. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So our sin got put on Christ, the full measure of all of our sin. And Christ bore our sin. He became sin but that's not all that happened. It says that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's this grand exchange in Christ through faith. And now his righteousness covers us. Our sin is on him. He pays the penalty. It's paid. There's no more sin, no more penalty of sin. And the power of sin is broken and the presence of sin will be eradicated in your life. There will only be glory to show at the very end. That's the wonderful truth of the gospel. And that's what Paul is grounding everything on here. And the call of God is such, and Romans 8 talks at length about the call of God. And uh, Read that quickly, Romans 8, 28-30. to It's talking about this call and the end result. So listen, it says, "...and we know that for those who uh, love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son." in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the context here in 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. That's the context here. And that's what makes all the difference in not making those mistakes. Do you see how they're connected? When you get... The gospel, when you get what he's done, you avoid both those mistakes because you realize I am indeed fully forgiven and I could just rest in my my forgiveness and not worry about trying. I could indeed do that because I'm totally accepted. I am covered in the righteousness of Christ. I am safe there. But that's not why he saved me merely to rest. He saved me to make me like Jesus. This is who I'm called to be. This is who I am, actually, in Jesus. This is who we are. So let us strive with all of our effort, all of the grace of God in us, to be like Jesus. We're free. Don't worry about it. We don't have to live in condemnation. We don't have to strive in our self-effort. But, but indeed, let's strive in His grace in our lives because that's what we're called to. So we avoid that mistake and we avoid condemnation because there's no condemnation. You're, in, you're forgiven. Your sin has been transferred to Christ and born away. On the cross, when the father looks at you, sister or brother, he sees Christ and he sees his beloved and all of your sin is paid for. You're, you're forgiven. You're free. There's no condemnation. You're accepted. You're part of the family and he is for you no matter what. Even if you do stray and even stray into serious sin, he will pursue you and bring you back. You can run, but you can't hide as a believer. That's a good thing, isn't it? So there's no condemnation. So don't live there. Don't live in guilt. Receive your forgiveness and get back on the path and say, Lord, help me. Help us be like Jesus. That context is so important to get as we look at this verse and as we move through it. The the compelling truth of, of the love of God for us in the gospel and all that we have changes everything. I hope that, that makes sense for us, uh, just that truth and, and its impact that it should have on our lives. So let me ask you, do you ground your life first on the Father's call on you into His kingdom and glory? Do you ground your life on His call that He has called you into His own kingdom and glory? He has provided in Christ your forgiveness he has given His Spirit to you and you are called into His kingdom and you are destined for glory. Do you ground your life there first as you face the tasks you must do? As you face the task of, of pursuing holiness and Christlikeness? As you face the task of the things that you're already doing and know you should do and called to do, do you ground your life on Him on His call into His kingdom and glory? Start with Him. Continue with Him. Finish with Him in His love and grace. Only when you do that will, will you be able to run the race over the long haul. Only when you do that will you begin to actually walk in a manner worthy of God. And walking uh, is just a metaphor for living, right? Just a, the conduct of your life. When you get the gospel, when you get what you have and, and, and what it means, you will pursue a manner worthy of God. Of the gospel a manner worthy of God this is what Paul talks about right in Philippians 3 I forget what's behind I strive to what's ahead I don't live in my mistakes I live in my future in Christ so I don't live in condemnation I don't live in failure I don't live in fear of trying either I pursue this because this is what I'm called to the upward call of God in Christ that's so important to get as we get into these other things it's so important for us to get as we, as we consider uh, the, the actions, the attitudes we're called to in Scripture. That's how we avoid those mistakes. Brothers and sisters, there's all sorts of people in those, and we all go there, right? We live in those mistakes. And if we're to understand how to both live in freedom, forgiveness and grace, and yet pursue holiness, we need to get the, these truths and live in light of the gospel. So a gospel-driven life begins and ends with God, in particular the, the truth of the gospel and all that surrounds it. Secondly, the gospel-driven life produces hard work. Paul says in verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's reminding them of his labor and toil and working day and night. Isn't that interesting? So there's four different ways to describe how they worked here. And so he's getting at something, right? It's not just, remember, brothers, we, we had a job while we were there. He doesn't just say that. He says labor and toil night and day. So this isn't just regular work. This is not just kind of keeping busy a little bit. That, I mean, that would have been enough to say because Paul and his team are there as missionaries. It's like what are you what are you doing working as missionaries? You should be doing this full, you should be full-time. And and you should rely on maybe some generous people in Thessalonica to support you. And Paul says, No, we we worked. We labored and toiled. We worked night and day. We took on all sorts of jobs uh, to supply our needs so we wouldn't be a burden to you. So they have the gospel in in mind and and the uh, fruit of the gospel among the Thessalonians. Now part of it is the context, and we're going to get into that. This was an area that seemed to to have some issues with hard work, seemed to have some issues with itinerant uh, philosophers who would come through and, and kind of leech off the people. And so Paul recognizing that, the team recognizing that said, look, we're, we're going to work. We're going to work hard. We're going to labor and we're going to toil. We're going to work night and we're going to work day. And so they're driven by the gospel. This team has been transformed by the gospel. By the way, that's the answer to when I said how could they have be doing this? Loving people, pouring their hearts out, going from persecution to persecution, still proclaiming the gospel. How do they do it? Because of the gospel. Because of all we talked about. All that they have in Christ. Their forgiveness, their life, what they're called to do. The, the the destiny of glory. So therefore they're loving the Thessalonians. So they come into Thessalonica. They love them. They labor and toil. They work night and day. It's, it's amazing. that the, the description here. Laboring and toiling. Toiling is, is not just like working. It's like sweating. Working hard. Hardships. Difficult work. It's like me doing uh, car mechanic work. That's toil for me because whenever I do it, it's supposed to take a half hour and it takes four hours. And and the ratchet falls down inside the engine and I can't get it out. And That's toil. Actually, one of the guys in, in our Saturday uh, men's breakfast was talking about a job he had with UPS. Um, he was an early morning unloader and he... Uh, so you work on the, the 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift doing this, so you get up really early, you show up there. And he talked about he was young, had lots of energy, but even so, uh, he came off that shift totally exhausted and then they told him you're not fast enough. To be uh, an early morning uh, unloader for UPS you have to unload 1200 boxes an hour. These are boxes of all sizes so you go in the truck and you have to unload 1200 an hour that's a box every three seconds that's all different size boxes right big boxes little boxes you have to take it off off the pile put it on the conveyor it, ha- it has to face a certain way and you're doing that for hours on end. That's toil right? That's hard work. Uh, I know some of you have worked that way and still work that way. You have hard jobs. That's what Paul's talking about. But imagine Paul on the UPS truck doing that work. That's that's the picture here. We labored and we toiled. We worked night and day. We took odd-hour jobs so that we could be freed up and you could be freed up to, to not burden you guys and proclaim the gospel. That's what he's saying here. It seems that laziness was an issue in Thessalonica. That's part of why Paul wants to set this example before them. We, we know that because you can read through the rest of the letter, and it's mentioned later on. He's going to give another thing about uh, admonishing the idol, and we're going to see that later on. And then 2 Thessalonians, there's a, actually a big paragraph uh, uh, where this very topic is addressed. So let's take a look at that just so you can see. Uh, chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, just flip a few pages, verses 7 through 15. Paul says this, so it's kind of an expansion of what we've seen already. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, Let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him, as a brother. So Paul is calling the the Thessalonians to hard work. And so he's setting his own example and the team's example before them, saying, guys, we worked hard and we toiled and labored. We worked night and day for you. And you ought to follow our example. Why? Well, we work hard because God has worked hard for us. We work hard because He's worked hard for us. He's given Him given us everything in His Son. He gave up everything, every comfort of of heaven, came to live among us, bore our sins, constantly is with us. We work hard because He has worked hard for us. That's part of why we work hard. We work hard because God gives us grace to use our gifts, to bless others, to earn a living, to bless our families and others in need. That's why we work. So it's out of love. He's been good to us. He's given us grace. He's given us gifts. So we're to fully employ our gifts. We are to work hard. A gospel-driven life is a life that produces hard work. It's part of our worship of God, part of our love of Him and, and one another. There's no room for laziness in the grace of God. There is no room for laziness in the grace of God. There's room for rest, and there's perfect rest. And and we need to be wise in how we rest. So I'm not talking about workaholism. There's a place for rest. There's, There's rest in the gospel. That's built into everything. But there's no room for laziness. We're to work hard. And we're to toil. And if we need to take odd shifts to bless others, supply the needs of our families, if we need to take on two jobs, whatever it might be, we do that in his strength. Because he so loved us. And we can, by his grace, love others. So that's part of what's taught here. The gospel-driven life is a life of hard work. And that's a good thing. So how are you doing in this area? Are you refusing to give in to laziness? Are you crying out to God for help with your workload? Are you asking Him to help you love others by working hard? Maybe you are... you. A different issue is you see work as a necessary evil when it's actually a necessary good. Work is not a necessary evil. It's a necessary good. We were called to work before the fall, before sin entered the world. We were called to work. Work is not evil. Work is good, and work is part of our worship of God and part of how we bless others. And God has given each of you particular gifts and contexts and opportunities to use your gifts to work. So work is worship. And so maybe for you, it's just simply, it's not that you're lazy, it's just that you're not seeing work as, as the Bible does. We're to work at everything with all of our hearts, knowing that we're not working for men, but for the Lord who gives us a reward. Isn't that amazing? God rewards us for our work, just whatever it might be. Whatever mundane task we might do, as we're called to do that, as we do it under the Lord, there's a reward for it. And we do it because He's loved us. So a gospel-driven life is a life of hard work. Next day, gospel-driven life produces character. Verse 10, Paul says, You are witnesses, and God also. So he's, he's being very emphatic. You guys know this, and God himself, whom we lived before, primarily, first and foremost, you are our witnesses, God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. The New Century Version, which is a, kind of a more updated American English version, says we lived in a holy and honest way without fault. That captures what Paul is saying. The idea is that they they walked before the Thessalonians in integrity, deep integrity. Their lives were compelling in terms of their integrity, their dependence on the Lord. They're walking out righteousness and goodness, loving one another, uh, honoring God with their conduct, their choices, what they chose not to do, what they chose to do. Resisting the world and the flesh and the devil so that they could love God and love others. and, And doing that in the Context of the community. And so Paul's pointing to that, saying, guys, you saw how we lived. You saw what our lives looked like. You saw the depth of integrity here. And, and so just as we're called not to be lazy in work, we're called not to be lazy in pursuing holiness and Christlikeness. We're called to, to live in Christ and His grace and run after Christlikeness, to run after Loving others, run after serving others, run after compassion, run after abstaining from the world, and yet investing in the things of the kingdom. Holiness is not about merely saying no, you must say yes as well. It's not saying no to the world and then being idle, it's saying no, I don't want that version, I want the holy version of it. And so I'm going to conduct myself. And you can, take, you can apply that to any area of life. How do, you con- how do you conduct yourself? And we can look into uh, to, you know, every, every area, every part of life. Um, how you dress, right? Choosing how you dress. Uh, it's not just saying, no, I'm not going to go with the, you know, look like uh, some movie star or whatever. I'm not going to do that. And, and then whatever it's thinking, how do I reject the world and think in terms of the way God thinks, my own self-image and how others relate to me, and dress in a way that promotes love, that I can bless others. That, that's the idea there, and that, that's this, uh, just an example among many things of how we're transformed by the gospel. So, that, so that's what Paul's calling them to in his example. He's saying, guys, remember how we lived, and now live it. Now again, remember the two mistakes, right? No condemnation, and no laziness, but living in the gospel and running after these things in joy, that's, that's the call here. And it's a good thing. The other weekend, on uh, the, the 29th, it was my birthday, I uh, did a nine hole golf lesson. Uh, and my son Daniel went with me, uh, so it was both of ours birthday gift. And uh, we golfed nine holes with a pro. How, how many here golf? I hope there's some. Only two of you? Uh, no, there's more. Okay. You know what the game of golf is though, right? We're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyhow, so I had to do this nine hole golf lesson. And if you uh, if you know the game, it, and if you know me, uh, th- my game does not look like a professional golfer at all, uh, even though some may think differently. Uh, and I need a lot of help. And so the idea of going and playing nine holes with a pro was very intimidating. And I actually was thinking ahead of time. I had all these strategies. Like what's going to happen? <laughs> like if he starts laughing, like what are we going to do? Uh, you know, I am just picturing him. You know, about the second hole, just saying, "Look, you guys are so bad." I give up, and just walking off, you know, I'm giving you, you can have your money back, (laughs) and and actually, it wasn't like that at all, Um, he was really good, he actually was an amazing golfer, he's a pro, and so every shot, he would kind of show us how to do the shot, and he didn't have one bad shot the whole day, it was amazing, like every shot, even the ones that he was like, oh, that wasn't as good, like, wow, that was incredible, I wish I could hit it like that, Um, put it in the right place, right distance, and he was like, lawless and effortless, so uh, he was really good. Um, and I wasn't. Um, and and it wasn't bad because he was gracious. He was actually a gracious guy. Um, he was there for us. He understood we were paying him to teach us. And so he was committed to us and helping us get better. And he actually, uh, in his graciousness, also didn't just say, okay, we need to change everything. There's nothing good. I was really, in, I was really surprised the first hole we we hit off, and he said, oh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it as we go. And he just went on to do the, the, the next shot. Um, I thought, like, right away, <laughs> that would be when he would laugh, you know. <laughs> oh, forget this. Uh, but he, but he's just gracious. And, um, and it was a wonderful time, nine holes, and he helped me tremendously. And I have to say that um, my golf game, uh, like, all that I thought I ought to be doing, I realized I was doing wrong. So I've been playing golf for 40 years. And basically I found out I've been swinging the club wrong for 40 years. So it's pretty fundamental, you know, pretty deep critique he brought to me um, in, in that. And I'm actually trying to figure out how to play golf again at this point the right way. I share that story because that's what it's like to walk with God. God golf's a perfect game, right? He's perfect. Jesus is perfect in his life and in every way. But he's gracious and you belong to him. And he's for you. And so let him into your life and let him critique your life and be unafraid. Be unafraid for him to say, hell, you've been swinging the club wrong for 40 years. Let me help you change. Um, because you're free. He loves you. He's for you. And, and, and he wants you, the Father wants you to be a scratch golfer. He wants you to be a, a perfect golfer. God wants to work in your life to make you like Jesus. So, so let him do it. Let him do that in your life. Let him work and and be eager to to pursue him. Um, He he wants to change you. He wants to make you holy, righteous, and blameless. So let me ask you, in light of that, what aspect of your golf game are you working on? Or put it off the metaphor. What aspect of your life are you working on to be more like Jesus? I think if we get the gospel, if we get where we're supposed to go, there always should be something we're working on. And and if we're not working on something to grow in our Christ-likeness, we're not growing. And there's no neutral. You're either growing or shrinking. So let me encourage you just to consider Paul's example and what he's doing here. You remember you and God is our witness of how we lived before you guys. It's not just... Paul's not patting himself on the back. He's saying, guys, I want you to pursue with the same vigor holiness and righteousness and blamelessness. Because I love you and the Father loves you and he wants to work in your life. So what is the area in your life to work on? There should always be, I think, at least one area because there's a lot of work, at least in my life, there's a lot of work to be done. But God is like that pro, you know. I've never known a time in my life where it's like all 1,000 things or more come at once. It's usually one thing at a time. If you want a good suggestion on where to start, just ask someone who knows you well. What would be one area that I tempt you in, in, in my conduct? And, and if they love you and they're gracious, they'll help you with that. That's a great way if you can't figure out something on your own. By the way, that's why God puts other people in your life. Right? Because he want, one of the reasons, he wants to help you. He wants to help you grow. He wants to help you be more like Jesus. So that's just a great way to apply this in your life. A gospel driven life is a life that produces Christ-like character. Finally, the gospel-driven life produces fatherly encouragement. So Paul, in verse 11, says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he's saying like a father with children. Earlier on he said like a mother with an infant. Now it's a father with children, that word meaning young children uh, most of the time. So father with children, um, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you. And so Paul is reminding them that we behave like fathers, and what fathers ought to do is they are ones who exhort and encourage and charge. So those words are very close together, exhorting, encouraging, and charging. Um, They're very similar to each other, but there's slight nuances here. So maybe uh, I could illustrate for you the the idea here. uh, First, he says that we exhorted you. Now again, the goal here, right, is to walk in a manner worthy of God and to live in, this call to his kingdom and his glory. And so we exhorted you. This is strong language, strong commands, a strong call. Uh, it's, it's, It's something like this. Just picture a father saying to his son, this sort of thing, Son, you've been called by God to live a life of faith and obedience. Don't settle for compromise. Don't settle for laziness. There is something much better in the grace of God. It might cost you a lot. It might mean you'll have to suffer and work really hard, but it'll be worth it all in the end because you'll please God and bless others and live without regrets. Son, pursue this. So that sort of exhortation that Paul and the team exhorted them to to pursue it that way. Next, he uses the word encouragement. This is kind of a, a little softer than exhortation. This is more of, of putting, it's putting courage, putting strength into someone's heart. That's what the word encouragement literally means. It's, it's to enhearten, to put strength in a heart. And so it's this sort of speech, something like this. Son, I, I know life can be overwhelming. I know what it's like to feel like an utter failure. I know all this, but I also know that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I know that God loves to take ruined lives and transform them in the power of the gospel. Jesus' blood shed for you and his spirit in you is mightier than your weakness and limitations, all your struggles and failures. You can do it because he can do it in you and through you. He can do it in you and through you, son. So don't give up. So Paul and his team encouraged the Thessalonians this way. And then finally, the word um, for for, uh, charging uh, is is the word, uh, it's a strong sort of passionate speech. It's standing and testifying with earnest, heartfelt words that you might hear. And, and 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 recognize the truth. It kind of has an aspect of, of it that might be used when somebody is is straying. So a scenario like this, my my son, my dear son, I, I love you more in my own life. If I had to, I'd take a bullet for you. If I could, I'd give my own life for you to make you happy. But I can't be you. You have to be responsible for your own life before God. And I've lived long enough to know that you can't even begin to be truly responsible until you cast your life on Christ. You need Him every moment, so I plead with you. Give your life to Christ every day, every moment. Only He can give you the forgiveness you need. Only He can give you the love for others you need. Please, son, please, trust in Christ. So That's the picture here. Exhorting, encouraging, and charging. And Paul is saying, we did this with you guys, and 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 I think he wants to remind them that he did this, but he also it's an example. Because I think when we love people, when we love one another, we do this together. And so Paul calls us to this and and we need each other in this way, guys. If the could come up actually as I close, we need each other in, in this way. We need one another to to give and hear those fatherly words. Those exhortations, those encouragements, those charges. We need each other. And we can't do it on our own. Frankly, we can't, guys. We, we can't do the Christian life on our own. We need people speaking into our lives in this way. And that's why we come together on Sundays. But let me tell you frankly, uh, I mean, we're, we're gracious, we're glad we're together. But if you're only doing Sundays, you just can't do this. You're, at some point, you're going to hit a point where, where you're going to need people in your life who know you and love you, you can trust, who can speak to you this way. And that's what church life is about. That's what our community groups are about. Our men's Bible studies, our ladies' Bible studies. That's what they're about. That's our goal. And so if you're not in another context besides Sunday, get in one. Get around people who know you and love you and practice these things. I encourage all of our small group leaders to take time every time you meet to encourage each other. We have a practice, I think it's a wonderful practice, of, we call it sharing out instances of grace. Just focusing on one person or a couple or something each time you get together, just to remind them about what God is doing in and through their lives so that they would be encouraged. Let, let that be a regular practice. Let th- this passage and others drive us in that. The gospel, a gospel-driven life is a life full of fatherly encouragement. So as we transition to communion, let me just call us to consider what this passage teaches us, this call to follow Paul in a gospel-driven life. It begins and it ends with God. It's a life of hard work. It's a life that produces character. It's a life that produces encouragement. Let's just take a minute to prayerfully consider just one thing perhaps the Lord would call us to, uh, respond to him about from this passage, and then we'll, uh, we'll transition to communion.